I'm glad you're here. We're going to jump in. And um, so we're just learning about the, uh, the, the giving of the Torah at, at Mount Sinai. And uh, I want to talk about different perspectives of this because this is sort of the, this is sort of the, 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 the central event in the, in the history of, of humanity, the history of the world. Um, and it's, it's just uh, uh, important to note that uh, the Jewish people aren't the only ones who say that God gave the Torah to the Jewish people at Mount Sinai. Uh, this is also one of the foundations of Christianity, and it's one of the foundations of Islam as well. They uh, then progressed their history in, in different ways. But nonetheless, all of the great religions of the world, the monotheistic traditions of the world, all say very clearly that this was a historical event that actually happened. So that's, that's just important for us to know. Another thing that really distinguishes the revelation at Mount Sinai from other religions that have uh, sprouted from it is that here you had an instance where you had approximately two to three million prophets simultaneously hearing the word of God. All other um, major religions are founded on a single prophet hearing it and then communicating that information to other people. So there's no comparison really in terms of the enormity of this event that you had millions of people simultaneously hearing that this is the only God and there is no other God. And further, that Moshe is the prophet of God. So, and, and furthermore, just so that we're all clear, what really distinguishes the Mount Sinai experience, the giving of the Torah Mount Sinai, is that, so we say, well, wait a second. So, 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 Okay, I understand God spoke and, and God revealed all this, but the Moses connection is very central to this. Why, why is it that we say, okay, well, maybe Moses was God's choice at that time, and then maybe God sort of evolved it over time, right? But, but that's, that, that actually is a, not a proper understanding of what took place. What took place was all of us received this level of prophecy that included Moshe's level of prophecy. What, what I mean to say by that is that all of us were Moshe at that moment. You see, it's... And what we also heard was God speaking directly to Moses. So it, it's a, it was a very unique, self-contained type vision where we understood that Moses is the exclusive prophet of God. And we experience that level of prophecy ourselves. Not just God speaking directly to us, but also us witnessing through prophecy God communicating directly with Moses as his exclusive agent. So in other words, a proper understanding of the Mount Sinai experience of the revelation of the Torah excludes the further development of the religion beyond that. So, so it's, it's, if one properly understands the Torah, they understand that this is the vision for all time. That it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't allow itself to get further transformed into anything else. This, this is it. This, this is it. See, it's, 
I'm going to say something that will sound perhaps a little bit radical or controversial, but I, I don't mean it as radical or, or controversial at all. And if you just stay with the thought <clears throat> and hear me out for a moment, you, you'll hear what I'm saying. <clears throat> First of all, we don't believe in religion. That, that sounds like a, that sounds like a, what do you mean you don't believe in religion? What are you, a closet atheist or something like that? What does that mean you don't believe in religion? Because religion is a weird word. Because you have, like, reality, right? There's reality, and then you say, oh, and then there's religion. Well, wait a second, what does that mean? There's, there's what's actually real, there's what's actually going on, and then you've got this other word called religion? Well, what's the connection between the two of those things? So that's why we don't believe in religion. All we believe in is reality. And what our religion tells us, if you want to use that word, is just a description of reality. In other words, many people go through life with this car, uh, car how do you say it? Uh, to, starts with a C. <laughs> okay, let's play. Uh, Cartmentalizing, how do you? Compartmentalizing. Compartmentalizing. Compartments, that's the word I'm looking for. They, they, they experience and they organize reality in different compartments, right? And then there's all sorts of rationalizations that take place, you know, uh, uh, in this floor plan of compartments, right? This is the way I behave in the business world. This is the way I behave uh, in, inside my house. This is the way I behave when I'm with the boys. This is the way I behave when I'm on a business trip, right? And it's sort of like all these different separate realities, right? And, and people, the, the mind allows you and, and aids and abets this type of rationalization and this type of sort of like schizophrenia, right? Which is often very self-serving because this is how I want to act and these are the liberties that I want to grant myself in this other environment and everything like that. But, but we say otherwise. We say, no, no, no. There's one standard of behavior which has to go across the board and has to hold for every situation, even if you're just alone by yourself you have to hold yourself to a high standard. So, so what I'm trying to say is, is that when we look at reality, there isn't reality except if I'm feeling religious, right? Maybe I'm in a religious mood right now. Now I'm going to behave. Now I won't stab you in the back because I'm feeling religious. No, that's not it. There is just reality. That's all there is. And, and if you have a set of beliefs, it better be in sync with reality. Right? Like, I heard Reb Shlomo say one time that the, uh, he called it a wholesale sin, meaning to say, like, a very large sin, okay, as opposed to a retail sin. He used to have, he used to have a run where he'd, he'd, he'd use that as sort of two reference points. So he says, what's an example of a wholesale sin? So this is like a big mistake. He says, imagine that you're at the Kotel, right? You're at the Western Wall, the holiest site, and you're davening your heart out and you're feeling so connected and then you finish praying, and then you say, okay, now back to real life. He said, that's a, that's a wholesale sin. That's what he said. Meaning to say, what do you mean now back to real life? Like what you just were experiencing wasn't real life? That wasn't real life? Like there's some kind of gap in between the two? There is no gap in between the two. So, so in other words, if we say that God exists, which is clear, 
anyway, well, to me. And then we say that, that he encompasses all of reality. Then tell me what religion is. Then try to now, now define religion for me. I don't, there's no room left for a definition for religion. Some weird band-aid term, right? Because all there is is what exists. A- am I communicating? Okay. So now, here's the controversial sounding thing that, that, that I wanted to say before. I would like to suggest that Judaism itself is a weird band-aid term. Because, because there is only what there is. Right? In other words, there is just reality. There is just monotheism. And that is the way monotheism, one God actually exists, the way he interacts with the world. Judaism is the accurate explanation of that thing. But when you call it Judaism, then all of a sudden, well, there's the Jewish view, and now there's the this view, and there's the that view, and everything like that. And then it's sort of like it seems like, well, reality is contingent upon whatever you want it to be. But there's an absolute reality. And it's not contingent on whatever you want it to be. It's what actually exists. Now, let me go a little bit further into this, because this is going to touch on the whole notion of faith. In other words, just just to review, so I'm making sure that we're communicating. There is monotheism. There is one God. that's, That's what it is. There is only one power. And it's not what people think, although they may not phrase it this way, that my God can beat up your God. Right? There is only one God. There is only one power. And that power interacts with the world in a very particular way. The Torah describes accurately that way. The Torah describes accurately what God's expectations are for us. But if you say, now call that Judaism, which we have to do in order to communicate, by the way. I mean, that's sort of a necessary evil that we're stuck with that term. But all of a sudden... Now that sort of opens it up. Okay, well, that's just Judaism, and then we have this one, and then we have that one, and then we have this one, and we have that one, and then perhaps they're all true to a certain extent. But that's not it. There's one reality. That's why it's sort of like monotheism sounds good to me these days, you know? Monotheism, and then what is monotheism? Well, look in the Torah, and I'll tell you what monotheism is. Because in the end of days, when God reveals his oneness, Throughout the whole world, there's not going to be 18 different thousand religions. There's only going to be one religion. And it's not because God won at that point a wrestling match with the other religions. That now he gets to choose what religion it's going to be. It was only that all along. And then it becomes revealed to be that that's what it was. And then all the nations go, oh, that's what it is. Because what are you going to say? If you believe that it's a rock is your God, and then all of a sudden you see God, you're not going to say, excuse me, God, it's you and the rock. You're not going to say that. You're going to go, oh, you know what? It wasn't the rock. That's what you're going to say. You know, I thought it was the rock. I'm sorry, God, but I see it's you now. The whole world is going to see the oneness of God. But that's the, the God that they're going to see is the God who's been there and who is only there the entire time since before the world was created, throughout the entire world, and now at the revelation of his oneness. So, so, so this is monotheism. There is only one player in this, in, this, in this world, in this reality. 
That's God. That's the way it's only ever been. Now, let me get into this concept of belief for a moment, okay? Because, because I think that this is a very important part of this whole construct, and it works very much with what we're saying right now. You see, there are two ways to go through life. Two, many, there are many ways to go through life. Someone, someone said to me one time years ago, he looked at me and he said, you know, I see your life going in one of two directions. I said, you know what? That's a real failure of imagination. <laughs> so anyway, there, there, are many, there are many different ways to go through life, but I want to suggest two, two ways right now, okay? One is what I would call the top-down approach. The other is the bottom-up approach. The top-down approach suggests that there is a reality that we, um, that we live amidst, and that's what it is. The bottom-up approach is the reality that exists is basically subject to me. This is the bottom-up approach. And, 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 and I will postulate, I will, I will conjure a reality to live within. Okay, to a certain extent, we all do that anyway. But I'm talking about in the ultimate sense. Let me, let me suggest the top-down approach as being the better approach. And let me tie this into the whole notion of belief, what, 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 what belief is, or, or what it isn't. And point out something which, which I think many, many people do, many very sincere, well-intentioned people do, and they're not aware that they're doing it. And I, I want to suggest, I'll tell you what it is in a moment, but I want to suggest that this is a mistake, okay? And here's what people think, okay? The, let's call this bad math. Here's the formula, right? God exists to the extent that I believe he exists. Or, I'll put it another way. Through belief, I make God exist. Right? I am causing God to exist through my belief in him. All wrong. All that's wrong. You know why? Because God either exists or he doesn't exist. And if he exists, he continues to exist whether you believe in him or not. And furthermore, if he exists and you say, and you give speeches and write books about how he doesn't, believe, uh, how he doesn't exist, God finds that hilarious. <laughs> That he's keeping you alive and giving you the power while you use it to say that the one who's keeping you alive doesn't even exist. That's nothing short of hilarious. So what I'm trying to say is like, and, and to put it in another way, I don't know that this is going to add any clarity, but it always comes into my head. Imagine walking into the kitchen and there's a pot on the stove. And let's say it has chicken soup in it. Right? But it's covered. All right? It's got chicken soup in it, but it's covered. Now, you don't know whether it has chicken soup in it or not. Okay? So you say, I really believe that it has chicken soup in it. <laughs> and through my belief, chicken soup is going to come into the pot. Or I really don't want to wash a pot. I really don't want there to be chicken soup in that pot. Guess what? It's either in the pot or it's not in the pot. That's what it is, right? God either exists or he doesn't exist. And, and our level of belief about it is important for us 
But it doesn't, it's not going to define the ultimate reality. So that's what I'm suggesting. If you, if you accept that, that God exists, and I think that if you look at nature and if you contemplate the massive complexity and yet simultaneously the incredibly well-ordered and simplicity of the universe from the trillions of planets and cosmos to the innumerable, innumerable subatomic particles and that everything works, that everything works together somehow. You have to say there's some kind of guiding force out there. Because it's sort of like, if you want to take a, a very grand sort of Darwinian sort of approach, which is that, you know, it's um, survival of the fittest. And that everything is clashing against everything else and then evolving into something new, right? Well, why isn't carbon crashing into uranium? And why does carbon still exist and uranium still exist? And my favorite element, Einsteinium, still exists, right? And oxygen still exists. That doesn't seem to be evolving at all. They all seem to be pretty cool with where they're at and continuing the way they are, you know? I mean, so, you know, and, and if people want to say everything is random. If everything's random, then this cup should turn into a hot dog and then to a mountain and then to an indistinguishable mass of molecules. It's not. It's staying a cup. So what do you mean everything is random? I see tremendous order. Okay, so if that's the case, if that's the case, then you say, well, wait a second. Okay, if, you know, th that should give a person belief on some level. And the more they contemplate it, the more belief. But, but let me take it another step. And this is a classic, I, I, I believe it's from the Chovos Halavovos, which is one of the classic Jewish texts I'm sorry if it isn't, but it's such an utterly simple, beautiful uh, uh, example that it's just, it's hard to beat this. This is like just classic, right? So, so someone was, in this example, someone was talking to a rabbi and, 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 and says that uh, God doesn't exist. And I... I'm sort of paraphrasing right now, but what he comes to show the person was he shows him a beautiful poem written in beautiful calligraphy on a piece of paper, right? And he reads it to the person, and the person says, wow, that's so beautiful. It's like blown away, right, by the handwriting and by the content of the poem. He says, where did this come from, right? And he said, well... Um, my, the ink in the well spilled onto a piece of paper and it made this poem. <laughs> and he says, that's impossible. <laughs> but think about how, how great an example that is. Because the ink would have to spill, make perfectly formed beautiful letters, right? The right amount of space apart, the sentence structure would have to sink and build within ideas and beautiful images. How could it be that ink can spill 
And even if you say, and, and this, by the way, is impossible, even if you say that the ink spilled and made these beautiful letters, would they form words which would express a progression of beautiful ideas? It's impossible. So if that's impossible, how much more so is the creation and the maintenance, the ongoing maintenance of this universe? It's impossible. It's impossible. Anyone who wants to be intellectually honest with themselves knows that, that that's impossible. And you know, every once in a while, I guess some, some seemingly smart person wrote this in a book, and I've heard other people quote it to me. So I just want to address it. And I don't know if I'm doing full justice to this um, anti-God version of reality, but let me just try to spell it out as, as best I, as I can, which is that, no, there are millions and trillions of universes, and they're all sort of like randomly evolving, and this is the only one that actually appears this way. But there are trillions and infinite numbers of imaginary universes that are all um, evolving in their own way, and this is just one example. Now, that in its own way, is sort of compelling and interesting, right? Okay, well, yeah, why, why shouldn't there be infinite trillions and millions and everything like that? But you know what's so hilarious about that viewpoint? Do you know how much amuna, how much belief you have to have now that there are infinite numbers of trillions of other universes that have all evolved in different ways? So now instead of just believing in God, in order not to believe in God, you have to now believe in not just this universe, but trillions of other universes. So it's like, what kind of business deal is that? You know what I mean? To get out of paying this guy $10, I'm going to pay you a billion dollars. What? <laughs> because I'm so cheap. What? <laughs> How does that work exactly? How does that work exactly? There's something very funny about if you analyze some of these more sort of like intellectual things, which, which sort of like, you know, venture out into the realms of, you know, quantum physics and all these other, you know, seemingly uh, intellectual, other kind of like, you know, disciplines, right? To, to give them muscle and weight and, you know, more, more strength and, and covet in your eyes and dignity in your eyes but you realize that it actually takes more belief, not less belief, to hold on to those visions. And so that is the essential irony, you know. But people aren't thinking clearly. They're not thinking clearly. So, so anyway, all of this is to say that at Mount Sinai, God exposed for us in public directly to each one of us directly on the level of Moses because all of us at that moment were Moses. We all had our Moses moment where we understood not only that this is all true and that God himself is communicating this directly but that God is also delivering it directly to Moses. That was part of our prophecy. Not just the direct understanding from God himself but the direct experience of Moses' prophecy being received directly from God. So we understood prophetically, A, that this is God speaking, and B, that God is speaking directly to Moses. And like I say, if you look into the Torah, it will tell you that it doesn't 
allow for other religions. It doesn't allow for it. It just, there's no room because we're only talking about one God. So, so with this in mind, I want to share some, a, a few thoughts. And one of them is something, you know, if you've been listening to the talks over the years, uh, one of my sort of primary interests is in uh, the Garden of Eden and specifically eating from the Tree of Knowledge. Like, what, what was that all about? You know, I'm, I'm endlessly fascinated by that. And I was fortunate enough to be pointed to a, um, a, a Rashi in, in, in Gomorrah, Rosh Hashanah. I believe it's uh, Tezvav. Um, and it's, it's, uh, it's a whole other take on, on, on the Garden of Eden. And not only that, but um, the, the centrality of, um, of Torah and Torah study, okay? And, and how Torah study really leads to the fixing of the entire world and the healing of the entire world. So let me, let me, let me lay it out for you, okay? So the opinion is, very interestingly, that, that the fruit from the tree of knowledge, there are different opinions. What was the fruit, Okay? So one opinion is it was grapes. I know that's Rabbi Meir. Uh, and this is, on page, this is in Sanhedrin, page 70, if you want to look at it. And you know how you can remember, because what do you make out of grapes? Wine. Wine in Hebrew is yayin, which is the gematria 70. And it, this opinion that the, tree of, that the fruit from the tree of knowledge was a grape is on page 70 so of Sanhedrin. So, you know? yeah. so, so that's one way of remembering it. Um, another opinion is that it was a fig, actually. That's Rashi's opinion. Why? Why a fig? Because it says that um, Adam and Eve, Adam and Chava, after they ate, they, they sensed that they were naked, and they covered themselves with a fig leaf. So Rashi, you know, asks, where'd they get the fig leaf from? From the fig tree. So it must have been a fig tree. Right? So they must have eaten a fig. Now, another opinion... Very, very interesting opinion. What we're going to go into right now is that it was actually wheat. Now, this actually gets really kind of way out in a moment, okay? So you say, well, wheat was like coming from a tree at that point. But more than that, it was actually bread, okay? So then you say, bread is growing on trees? Because we know that one of the prophecies for the end of days, where the Gomorrah brings it, is that, is that bread is going to grow whole. And that's, that's, that's a very interesting idea because the, the, the whole idea is that one of the, that that level of labor isn't going to be exacted upon us when the world reaches its next state, stage of spiritual evolution and perfection. That sort of laboring for bread isn't going to be necessary anymore. Even bread, like other fruits and vegetables and things like that, will come complete. But now listen to this. That also suggests that that's the way it was in the Garden of Eden. Because if you think that the curse of Adam was that he was going to have to labor for bread, then that suggests, well, why would that be a curse? If God made the world that way anyway, where you have to labor for bread, then why is that a curse? 
That's the way it was originally. Unless it was originally bread, and now you have to labor for it after eating from the tree. Do you understand the logic of it? So then that suggests that, no, it actually, the, one opinion would be that not only was it wheat from the tree of knowledge, but it was actually bread from the tree of knowledge. So that's, that's a very interesting take. Now listen to this. What's the support? How, how seriously do we take this? Like, you know, there's um, one, of the, one of the tests in Jewish thought and Jewish learning and things like that of our approach is that it's very nice to have ideas and exalted ideas and everything like that, but one of the things that really measures a more scholarly, more exact approach is where do you see this idea in halacha? You want to see it in halacha lamaisa, in Jewish law, in the way we be behave. In other words, if you think about it in a tzimtzum model, in other words, like God's expanse of light being condensed and condensed and coming down ultimately into this world, right, into physicality. So ideas themselves should land in something practical. Re remember, this world is called, Kabbalistically speaking, olamasiyah, which means the world of action. So in other words, if there's an idea, that's something that's very elevated and exalted. But, but the bottom line is, what do I do in the here and now through action in this world? And that's the question of what's the halacha? And remember, halacha, just, it's translated as Jewish law, but a better translation is the flow or the way. You know, it's got a, a much more kind of like Eastern kind of feel to it. Not, not the didacticness of, of Jewish law. That's a... It's a, an unfortunate translation. Uh, translation. Remember, halacha has the word holech, means to walk, to go. That's, that's flow. That's flow. The idea being that, that when you're in tune with halacha, you're in harmony with yourself and the universe. Right? That's the, that's the idea. That's why halacha is so important. So, so when you see a, an exalted idea, you ask yourself, well, where do we see it in the halacha? Because then that means it's, it comes down into the here and now. So this idea that, that, that A, the fruit from the tree of knowledge was not just wheat, but it was actually bread, all right, where do we see that? In halacha. So now listen to this amazing thing. So Rashi points out in Tezayan, in Gomorrah Rosh Hashanah, says that this is in accordance with Rabbi Yehuda's opinion that the fruit from the tree of knowledge was actually bread. And this is why on Shavuos, right? So what's Shavuos? That's the holiday where we celebrate the receiving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. There's a special offering, a unique offering, unlike all the offerings for the rest of the year that we bring on Shavuos when we're celebrating getting the Torah at Mount Sinai. And that's called the shteya lechem, which means the two loaves of bread. Now you say, okay, well, I'm still not there yet. Give me a little bit more. <laughs> so here's the missing thing. Shavuos is the holiday, the new year of fruit-bearing trees, and you have to bring fruit to the base of Migdash. And so the Gomorrah is saying that the fruit that we bring is the two loaves of bread. Well, how does bread become fruit? Unless the, the fruit that we're talking about 
is the fruit from the tree of knowledge that Adam and Eve ate. Now it's sort of like almost coming together. <laughs> Let's take it one more step. And this is, I think, now Reb Tzadak HaKohen talking. Okay? Now listen to this. This is where it kind of all comes together and gets very deep. You see, when we accepted the Torah at Mount Sinai, it says that we reach, the Gomorrah says, that we reach the level spiritually speaking, of Adam and Eve before they ate from the tree of knowledge. So we rose all the way back, spiritually speaking, to Adam and Eve before they ate from the tree of knowledge, where fruit was still bread. (laughs) Right? Before it had reality sort of devolved and came down a a huge level in terms of all of reality being garmented and life being much more difficult, much more challenging. They rose to the level, back up to the level, before we ate from the tree of knowledge. And so now you see how it's appropriate, Anshfuis, which is commemorating the time of where we were before we ate from the tree of knowledge. At Mount Sinai, we had risen to that level. It's appropriate that when it says bring fruit as an offering to the base of Migdash, that we're bringing bread. Because that's indicative of the level where we were holding at that moment. Is that clear? But I want to take it one more step. And I haven't seen Reb Tzadik HaKoyin's treatise on this. So I'm sure he says it, but I don't know for sure. Which is that this is how we're going to get back to that state again, through Torah. Through Torah, this is how we're going to get back to that state again. Because Torah harmonizes all of the competing energies in the world. All the anger, all the covering, all the everything, all the fighting, all the everything, all the confusion... All the crazy energy that's in the world, Torah comes and harmonizes it. And when we learn Torah, we harmonize all of the energies that are competing in this world. And we bring clarity to the world. So this is, this is how we're going to get back. This is how we're going to get back. Now I want to point out something in the beginning of Parshas Yisra. Change the subject a little bit. But, but, but not exactly. We're going to keep on going, just kind of take a deeper take right now. Which is, which is, there's a very interesting event that the Torah discusses at the beginning of Parshas Yisro, which again is the portion of the Torah which discusses receiving the Torah at Mount Sinai. So really all of Parshas Yisro in one way or another is connected to the, the Mount Sinai Torah experience, Okay. And what it says is that Moshe's father-in-law, who is a very amazing figure, he was the um, he was the expert on religion in the world. And it says that he worshipped every single religion. And at the end of his life, he came to Torah. Okay. And he gave his daughter 
Zipporah to Moshe as a wife. We're going to see something amazing about that in a moment. Okay? Not only that, Yisro was one of the three chief advisors to Pharaoh. And it says that the three chief advisors were Yisro, Bilam, and Job. Okay? And when it came to advising Paro about how he should treat the Jews, Bilam said, kill him. And of course, Bilam gets killed by the sword. Job said nothing. So God says, you're going to stay silent while my children are suffering? I'm going to stay silent while you're suffering. Okay, that's the Job story boiled down to one moment. Then you have Yisro, right? Yisro said, leave him alone. And he had to run. He had to flee. And his reward for, for sort of standing up for the Jewish people and being compassionate in that way is that he becomes Moses' father-in-law. All right? So now listen to this. It says here in, uh, let's see, it's chapter 18, um, verse 7. It says that, okay, Yisro comes, and they say, even, they say that this actually happened after we received the Torah at Mount Sinai, even though uh, in terms of the narrative of the Torah, it's, it's, uh, it appears before we received the Torah at Mount Sinai. And I've actually spoken on that before in terms of kind of, time and space and how the Torah allows us to go back in time just in terms of fixing our past deeds, not, not time travel per se, um, but that's a type of time travel, but, but let's not get too science fiction-y here. This is just talking about the power of tshuva, that it allows you to, so to speak, if you see the amazing aspect of tshuva, of, of returning to God, is that it says if you do it out of love, you turn all your past mistakes into mitzvahs. You turn all of your past, you know, like when you were off the mark, into good deeds that you receive reward from. So how does that work exactly? So, so if you think, think of it in this way, that I think everyone agree, would agree that you are, I am, the sum total of everything that's happened to me up until this moment. My whole life has been leading up to this moment, right? Who I am this moment. Now, if who you are, let's say that you did a lot of crazy stuff, right? You're eating hamburgers on Yom Kippur, whatever it is. Crazy stuff. But the person who you are right now is someone who doesn't want to eat hamburgers on Yom Kippur, right? Then that means that those experiences helped make you who you are right now who's someone who's embracing the truth. Therefore, even though we weren't supposed to go down that road, but we did, because that led to the evolution of our present self in a very positive way, that means that even though at the time we shouldn't have done that, nonetheless, it led to something very positive. So in retrospect, it was actually a mitzvah if you return to God in the present out of love. If you just return to God in the present out of fear, 
then God says, well, it's like it didn't happen. I'm not giving you any credit for it, <laughs> but it's like it didn't happen. If you return out of love, then God says, oh man, then that's, I'm counting all that stuff as mitzvahs. So, so here you see that the Torah actually has a way of affecting our past as well. That, that's what I mean by the time travel thing. Not that you can all of a sudden shake hands with Benjamin Franklin. You know, It's just that, that one's past deeds become accounted for in a different way. That, that's the point. Now, now listen to this, though. We do believe in reincarnation. Judaism holds by reincarnation. And that's what I want to get into in a, in a moment here. So, so Moshe is standing there, and Yisro, his father-in-law, is coming, and most, most accounts are, this is after the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. And Moshe comes, and he, all the Jewish people come and, and greet Yisro. Can you imagine the honor he's accorded and the love he's accorded? It's an amazing thing. And... Uh, it says, Moshe bowed down before Yisra. Now, Moshe has just received, has just gone up to heaven to get the Torah. Can you imagine who Moshe is? That he's now bowing down to Yisra. Not, can you imagine who Yisra is? Can you imagine who Moshe is? Do you, do you hear the question? It's not like Yisro is better than Moshe, and Moshe is acknowledging that Yisro is better than him. No. Look at the humility, the magnificence of Moshe, that even after he receives the Torah in heaven, he's bowing down to his father-in-law. Right? Amazing. Amazing. The, the level of humility is outrageous. Right? But I heard from Reb Shlomo, and I, I, I'm not sure what source this is. You know, whenever you're getting into Gilgulim, into past lives, you know, Oftentimes it's the Ari or the Zohar. I, I, I don't know exactly what the source for this is. But nonetheless, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's real. It says here that there was an important tikkun from a past life going on right here. And what, what was that tikkun? That Moshe and Yisro were reincarnations of Cain and Abel. Cain and Hevel. And you hear something very interesting here now, which is that if you remember the story, and we're going to talk about two parts of the story right now, okay? If you remember the account, this, of course, were the, the first two children of Adam and Eve, the first two children that existed, and they, there was a murder. So, you know, human, human society starts off with a bang, so to speak, you know? Um... So, so what happened? Cain, bless him, Cain, Cain, had this idea. Uh, an amazing idea, which is, what if I take some of the produce, some of the bounty, um, actually, that, that God has given me, and I offer it back to God as a way of saying thank you? And he, that was a big idea, and he did that. And then Hevel, who becomes Moses, says, oh, okay, I'm going to do the same thing. And he brings his best stuff. Cain didn't bring his best stuff. But Hevel brings his best stuff. God takes that offering and doesn't take Cain's offering. 
And Cain gets very upset. And in one of the accounts, we're going to give you another account in a moment, in one of the accounts, he murders him. And by the way, I heard from Rabbi Shlomo that there's also an opinion that he didn't know that he killed him. And that he sat by his body for days saying, wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up. Which is just endlessly heartbreaking, you know, because what did he know for murder? That's one opinion. Okay. But you see, there's a problem here. And it's not so obvious, but after you hear it, I think you'll hear the depth of it. Which is that Hevel brought his best stuff, and that's fantastic. And that offering found more favor before God. That was a great thing. But there was something missing. Hevel got the idea to bring an offering to begin with from Cain, and he never thanked him for it. In other words, if you think about it, the real breakthrough idea there was not bringing your best stuff. It was bringing anything. That, that, was the, that, was the, that was the chiddish. Like, you mean you can take some of your stuff and offer it back up to God? That's a big idea. That's a very big idea. That was Kain's idea. Hevel then tinkered with it. He goes, you know what? As long as we're bringing something, let's bring our best stuff. But that was just a fine-tuning of Kain's idea. And he never thanks Kain. So Reb Shlomo said that when Moshe bows down to Yisro, that that's the fixing, that's the thank you that he never received, that Hevel never gave Kain. That level of acknowledgement was the fixing. And it says here, Ish l're'ehu l'shalom. Peace. Each man to the other with peace in describing the bowing down. The key word being shalom here. And I want to suggest that this word shalom is talking about this rectification of this past life. But now listen to this. If you want to say maybe it's just going one way. Because it says with pronouns, they bow down to each other. And so actually you need to get into a little bit of uh, lumdus into Torah scholarship to figure out who's bowing to who. So in other words, we figure out that it's Moshe bowing down to Yisro. And yet God deliberately structured this, this, the, the phrasing of this in a way that's ambiguous who's bowing to who. Why? Because seemingly there was a debt that Yisro is paying back to Moshe as well. So what's that? Well, now let's listen to this other account about Cain and Abel, okay? So the Medrash says the following. Cain was born with one girl, twin sister, and Hevel, Abel, was born with two girl twin sisters. In other words, there were uh, twins and triplets. And Kain sees the extra girl that Hevel has, and he's very jealous. And that that was the source of the murder. Right? Because what does that mean? 
and this is something that all of us go through in, in, in our lives. How come I have this and you have that? Right? Why is that fair? Why do you get to have that and I have this from birth? Why is that fair? So you see, that type of disparity has been with us literally from the start. Literally from the start. This one is born with one twin sister. This one is born with two twin sisters. I don't like it. I don't like it at all. This is not fair. I'm angry. I'm angry. All right? But you want to hear something deep? So Rabbi Kuczynski said the following. So, so Yisro is the one who's born with one twin sister. He wants the other one, right? What does he do? What is, what, I mean, that's Kain. Kain is born with one twin sister. Kain becomes Yisro. Right? So he wanted, Kain wanted to take the woman from Hevel, who becomes Moshe. Right? Are, are we communicating? So Kain, who is the one who wants to take the extra girl, right? Kain becomes Yisro. What does Yisro do? He gives his daughter to Moshe for marriage. Isn't that unbelievable? Isn't that unbelievable? I, I, I hope you followed me. Yisro who is the one who is kind, who, is lack, who took away the daughter, Yisro, during his, this incarnation, gives that girl, his daughter, to Moshe, to marry. And so you see, you have on both sides, now, now it's returned to this idea how they're each bowing to each other. Now we know it's really Moshe bowing to Yisro, but nonetheless, the, the, the phraseology in the Torah is deliberately vague, to suggest that who's bowing to who? Meaning to say they're both fixing something. So Moshe is acknowledging the debt of thanks that Hevel never acknowledged to Kain. It was your idea to begin with. And Kain is saying, you know something? This is just the way it is. I took your sister. You know what? I'm giving, I'm giving my daughter back to you, Moshe. Each is making this unbelievable repair. Okay. So this is ish l're'ehu l'shalom. That to each other, to each other, each man to the other is making peace. That's going back in time. So remember, I'm talking about how the Torah itself is the blueprint of reality. I'm talking about how, how, how in our own lives, by, by doing Torah mitzvot, we can even fix leading up to our present time, we can change our past deeds. Now I'm showing you how with reincarnation through Torah, we can fix past lives. But I also want to show you the infinity of the Torah itself, how it's talking about all time simultaneously. Because ish l're'ehu, these words which are talking about this bowing down to each other, ish l're'ehu are two very crucial words from Megillus Esther. When it's talking about, it says, Ish l'reyehu l'matanus levionim. Each man gives gifts to each other. And that's why we give gifts to each other on Purim. 
right? Food baskets to each other from, from this Pasuk. So now, what's the Purim connection going on here? We got a big Purim connection. Ishlarehu. Those are two of the biggest words in Megillus Esther. And then not only that, but Ishlarehu, Lamatinus, Levionim. If you take the first letters of those four words, it spells out Elul. That's one of the famous acronyms of Elul. So what is the Purim connection going on over here? What's the Elul connection going on over here? So the Purim connection is very clear. It says at the end of the Purim story that we re-accepted the Torah from Mount Sinai. That at Mount Sinai we did it out of Yira, only out of fear. And at the end of Purim we accepted, re-accepted the Torah out of love. So we're referring to Purim over here. So already we're talking about Purim right now. The full acceptance of the Torah. Right? Not only that, but what's the Elul connection? Because on the first day of the month of Elul, Moshe Rabbeinu went back on top of Mount Sinai and got the second tablets. So look what's contained in these two words. You pick out two words here, you stretch them. You've got past lives, you've got Elul, you've got the future, you've got everything that's going to happen. Every single word in the Torah is like this infinite chunk where it's a portal to like every different era in humanity, in your own life. It's an awesome tool. Awesome. It's beyond. No one should think the Torah is a book. The Torah is not a book. How do you fit all of reality in two inches? You can't fit all of reality into two inches. You have to delve and go deep, and then you realize, oh my God, it's all here, it's all here, it's all here. So then the question is like this, and, and, and I want to get very practical in terms of our own lives right now. What is your relationship with the Torah, and what is your relationship with everything that you have in your life? Okay, bless you. And so now open up your hearts, please, because I really want to talk to each one of us in a very real way in terms of how we're leading our lives, okay? So now I want to tell you, A, when we talk about the Mount Sinai experience, it's called Kabbalah's HaTorah. And, and, and that means to receive, to receive the Torah. So we don't say the giving of the Torah, we don't say the taking of the Torah, the accepting of the Torah. It's the receiving of the Torah, Kabbalah's Torah. So to explain it, Reb Shlomo gave this example actually in another context, actually about the land of Israel, which is very interesting that he used the example that I'm about to give you about the status of the land of Israel. But I want to apply it to the Torah because he would agree to this too, I think. But this is his mushal, his example. Imagine you give a wedding ring to a woman, right? And uh, you come home one day and you see that uh, she doesn't have it. And you say to her, where's the wedding ring? And she says, oh, well, it's mine, and so I gave it to someone else. It belongs to me. So if you think about it, there's something wrong with that. <laughs> but, but, but what's wrong with that? Because technically speaking, it does belong to her. So theoretically, you'd hope that she wouldn't give it away. But if it does in fact belong to her, maybe she could do it. But then 
you think about it again, and you go, no, there's something whacked out about that. There's something wrong about that. So what's wrong with it? So the, 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 what's wrong with it is the following, that there was a moment of time when a transfer was made, when you gave the wedding ring. And technically speaking, that it, at that moment, it did become hers. But there's certain types of things that maybe it gave it once, and technically speaking, you can point to a time and a calendar date when you gave it. But there are things that are much deeper than that, which are basically, you never stop giving them. You see, that's what's so awesome about, say, a wedding ring, for instance, because it's a symbol of an ongoing relationship that never stops. And as long as you're married, every single moment, on some deep level, you're giving that wedding ring, which is a sign of your love and a sign of your commitment to each other. And that's the truer, deeper reality that's going on. So in other words, it's not a question of you gave it to her once. When you gave it that one time, it was the beginning of never stop giving it. Do you hear? This is the concept of receiving. God never just gave us, no, we don't say the giving of the Torah, because that implies that it happened and that it's a historical event. We talk about the receiving of the Torah, because it's going on every single moment. Not only that, but on a deeper level, we say that the world is being created every single moment, moment by moment, every nanosecond. The world is being created and recreated. And what's it being created out of? The Torah itself. That God is using the fabric of the Torah, the letters of the olive bays, all of the divine energies, in order to create the Torah. And he's giving it to us every single moment. So we're not just receiving the Torah every single moment. We're receiving the world which is made out of the Torah every single moment. It's really far out. But it's like every single moment it's going on. And in fact, when we say Shema, if you look at the Rashi, it's in the Eschanan, where Shema appears. It says, means today, that God is commanding us today. And if you look, what does that mean today? It says that every single day you should experience as though you've just been given the Torah today. So we actually say it in the, in the Shema every, a few times a day, that that I'm experiencing this moment anew right now. It's happening right now, but it really is happening right now. It's not just that my attitude should be that it's happening right now, but if the world is being recreated every single moment out of the Torah, you really are receiving the Torah every single moment right now. Now, let me make this more practical. In terms of your life, a lot of us, you know, a lot of us are single-issue voters with God. We've got our need, and God, you're either giving me my need or you're not giving me my need. And I'm boiling down my whole relationship with you, really, based on do I have this thing or do I not have this thing. Meanwhile, God is giving us a trillion other things. Right? But where's going, no, God, you know what? I'm making this the barometer of our relationship, and that's what it is. You're either giving me this or you're not giving me this. It's a very myopic way of interrelating with God. It really is. 
You know, I, 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 every once in a while, I, I describe this class as couples therapy between us and God, you know? And I think that this is an example of the couples therapy aspect of it. You know, it's not fair to God. Can you imagine, like, you, you like roses, right? And what's your husband giving you? He's giving you chocolate. He's taking you out for dinner. He's taking you to Mexico, right? And you're like, where are the roses? You know? <laughs> Why do you hate me? <laughs> Why do I hate you? Why are you asking me that question? So, so, but we say, okay, well then, okay, fine. God gave me these other things. But he gave me that, that thing, which granted is a big thing, and I acknowledge that it came from God. That was eight years ago. <laughs> and that other thing, granted, that's a very big thing. That was 20 years ago. Right? So, what, you know, let's be real. So, this goes back to what I'm saying right now, which is, which is, are you still in the process of receiving those things? In other words, everything that we have in our life, in one moment, doesn't have to be there. Shem should bless us with divine protection. Everything that we have that we love should remain. But if it's there the next moment, even if you've had it a long time, if it's there the next moment, it's because God gave it to you again. And God gave it to you again. And God gave it to you again. And he keeps on giving it to you. And the only way to tap into that is to get into this mindset of receiving. That you're still receiving everything that, you're, that you have. And then you can start, your heart will start to open up and your mind will start to open up. And you'll realize how much is actually coming down every single moment. You know... There's an interesting halacha. It's actually a very complicated halacha, and I, I, I still haven't actually figured it out yet, but I'll just give you the parameters of it. There are certain instances where if you make a brocha, let's say I make a brocha on an apple. I say, brocha tashem elokinim elcholam and I bite into the apple. And now imagine I go into, uh, I take this apple with me, and I'm now in my office, right? And it's still the same apple. Under certain circumstances, and you'll have to ask a rabbi to get the actual uh, halacha on this, but under certain circumstances, I have to make a new brocha on this apple. Now you say, well, wait a second. I already blessed this apple. I already acknowledged that, that, that this apple came from God. But because I'm in another place, under certain circumstances, it requires a brand new brocha. Okay? And by the way, if you're wondering about this, the, the rule is when in doubt, don't make a brocha. Okay? So just don't be too confused by this until you actually learn the halachas in detail. But, but, but nonetheless, you'd, you'd make on this very same apple that you already acknowledged came from God, a new bracha. And I just want to give an interpretation of that on a spiritual level. Yes, it's true. The first time I said, God, this apple comes from you. But do you know what I'm doing the second time? I'm saying, God, thank you that I still have it. <laughs> Thank you that I still have it. I'm in a new situation in my life right now, and I still have it. In other words, to get something is one thing. To still have it, that's a whole nother blessing. It's a whole nother blessing. We have to appreciate that. We have to stay receivers. Okay.
Now I want to mention a couple more things and we'll wrap it up. So there's a big message of hope here, I think. And I want to tell you two stories from my, two stories, one from my life, one uh, from the NBA. <laughs> so I don't know much about the NBA, but uh, I do know this. I just learned this from my son, Mendy. So uh, right now the Clippers are the number one team in basketball. That in itself, if you're very religious, you would call a miracle. And the top player on the Clippers is someone named um, uh, Blake Griffin. Am I saying his name right? Yeah. So Blake Griffin is actually, I've seen him play. He's an amazing player. He like literally flies, flies around the court. You know, he's a giant guy too, which is even more impressive. So he was the number one draft pick, which is, again, you're dealing with the NBA now. So the number one draft pick in basketball in the world, that's a very big deal. While he's getting ready for his first season, he got an injury. Now, anyone who knows anything about professional sports knows that an injury can actually wipe out your entire career. A very precarious field where you basically invest your entire life into something, and an injury can ruin it. So here's the number one draft pick in the NBA, and he gets an injury that keeps him out of his entire first season in the NBA. Now, put yourself in his shoes for a moment. You're thinking, am I ever going to come back? Am I, am I, is there any hope? Is it all over? My whole life's work, is it, is it finished? Right? Imagine what he went through that first season. Right? So now he recovered, and in his second season, and here's the, here's the point, the second season, he was named after the second season Rookie of the Year. <laughs> now, if you know something about sports, you'll appreciate the hilarity of that, because by definition, you can't be rookie of the year your second season. Rookie of the year means that your first season, you were the best. But he didn't have a first season through a technicality. But here you see rookie of the year in the second season. In other words, the world is ever new. You can even be rookie of the year your second season. We all reach a point in our lives where we go, it's over. You know, I'm not even eligible for rookie of the year anymore. Well, here you see, you can win Rookie of the Year your second season. Amazing. At any point in your life, you can completely rededicate yourself. At any point in your life. At any point in your life. Because the world is ever new. That is the truth of reality. But now let me give you another story to illustrate how it's very hard to think this way. I Thank God I have two girls. I have a nine-year-old and uh, a 12-year-old, and uh, the nine-year-old just started reading. I I mean, she knew how to read, but she just started enjoying reading and on her own kind of reading books. You know, they're little books, but nonetheless, she's expressing an interest, and that's that's a nice thing. So she was on her break, and she had gotten, like, some books, and she, um, uh, her big sister's a big reader, and so she's like, um, she knows uh, her big sister keeps a reading log. Like what, you know, she types the name of the book and the number of pages, right, the author, and keeps a reading log. So Talia, my nine-year-old, she, she's on her break, and she said, do you think I should keep a reading log? And maybe I could show my teacher what I read over the break. 
I said, I think that's a great idea. And she goes, but you know something? I've already read books and I didn't put them on the log. So it's not going to be complete. And so she thought, maybe it's too late. And let's just pause a moment there. If you wonder in your life right now to yourself, is it too late? Can you imagine a nine-year-old <laughs> said to me, maybe it's too late. If you want to know how deeply ingrained this proclivity to tell ourselves that it's too late, I was hearing it from a nine-year-old girl. So if you want to know what you're battling against when you hear that voice in your head, that didn't just come from today. She's nine and she's telling me maybe it's too late. And so thank God her sister was sitting right there and I said to Sarah, the 12-year-old, who's a big, big reader, I said, when you started keeping your reading log, how many books had you already read? And she said, two or three <laughs> hundred. And so I said to Taya, you see, she started after two or three hundred. And then Taya said, oh, okay. And then she kept her reading lock. And she started her reading lock because she said it wasn't too late. Now I heard something from my wife from a friend of hers, which boils it all down to one sentence. It's never too late to do the right thing. It's never too late to do the right thing. And uh, I know this from my own life. Let me just end with this. I know this from my own life that uh, sometimes someone does something nice for you and you're so grateful and you, you don't know how to say thank you and you're trying to think of the perfect way and then all of a sudden a few days, weeks, months passed, and then you get seized with this emotion, it's too late. There was a window there, now it's completely inappropriate. In fact, it would almost be an insult if I got in touch with them at this point to contact them. But it's not true. It's all just the eights are. It's not true. It's not true. There is no person in the world who doesn't love receiving a card or a note or an email that says thank you at any point. You say, you know, I, I've been wanting to do this for so long and I'm, I've never stopped thinking about X that you did and thank you so much. It's never too late. It's never too late. And if you hear a voice in your head that it says it's too late, it's mamish coming from the other side. It's just a lie. It's a lie that's being told to you. It's a lie that's being told to you. Don't listen to it. And then, of course, how do you start? You just take one action. One positive action, whatever it is. And then you build on your own success. Don't, don't then say, okay, I'm going to do it, and then set an impossible goal. One tiny action. One tiny action. You know, you say, I want to write something, so what's the beginning? Take a pen and put it on the table and walk away. <laughs> That's it. You started the process. That's it. That's it. It can be that small. But from little things, right? Right? Like they say from acorns, right? From an acorn, a mighty oak. That's the truth. That's the truth. And I'll just tell you one last, last story, just to illustrate this. Um, 
I was in Israel about 23 years ago on Shavuos. And there was a horrible terrorist attack that was planned, and thank God a trillion, billion, zillion times it didn't take place. But what, what the, the Palestinians were in these like rubber dinghy boats, and what they were going to do is they were going to come onto the beach in Tel Aviv and chas v'shalom a million times make a massacre, right? What happened was their, 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 their navigation was just a few degrees off, like just slightly off. But over a period of a distance, that slightly off sent them to a separate beach entirely, right? Because if you think just, if something is just a little bit tilted this way, if you extend it for a period of time or a period of a distance, all of a sudden the level of separation is quite significant. They landed on the beach of a military compound and they were all apprehended. But you see how a slight change in direction over a period of time can lead to amazing results. Little attitudinal shift, little, little daily something. And I know that I've seen it in my own life, like for instance in Torah study. I don't learn so much every day, but I learn a little every day. And over the years, it just accumulates. It just does. And any, anything you want to do, just whatever it is. So even if you start small and you go, oh, what good will that do? It'll do a lot. Believe me, it'll do a lot. Okay, we should all be blessed with newness and dedication and love. Yeah.